Hi, I'm Dr. Ohad, Cognitive Behavioral Psychologist. Thank you so much for your interest in my Unhealthy Habits mini-course. I really hope I'm able to give you something of value today in return for your time. That being said, I will try to make this short and to the point so as not to take up too much of your time. Over the next few short videos, I'll be providing you with a simplified explanation of how the emotional system works, as well as an explanation with examples of how certain habits, which may be intended to help us feel or behave better, may actually exacerbate uncomfortable emotions or unwanted behaviors. My hope is that by the end of this mini-course, you'll have a better understanding of why you're having trouble resolving some of the issues you have, and also you'll realize you do have the ability to resolve those issues, possibly even on your own. Then, I'll wrap up the mini-course with a description of the Healthy Mindset Toolkit, which provides you with the same tools that I use with my clients to help them resolve issues just like yours. If you wish, you'll have the option to continue on and join me in the Healthy Mindset Toolkit, and if not, then I hope that what you learn in this mini-course will also help you start making changes for the better. By the way, if you feel like I'm speaking too slowly, you can always change the speed of my speech by clicking on the settings icon, that round wrench icon in the bottom right corner of your video and changing the speed to suit your preference. Also, since the platform I'm using is web-based, you should be able to access it from any internet-connected device, including a desktop computer, tablet, or mobile phone. If the video you're viewing ever gets stuck, simply refresh the screen and try again, or try accessing the course from a different browser or device. Well, I think that's enough preparation. Ready to get started? See you in the next video. Welcome to lesson one of the course. In this lesson, we'll be reviewing how the emotional system works so that we can better understand how bad habits can cause emotional problems and behavioral symptoms, and how we can replace those habits with healthier coping skills. Now, I know that you may be itching to get started with practical exercises, so I'm going to ask you to bear with me since a good understanding is crucial to replacing bad habits with good ones. I'll try to make the explanations concise and to the point, and I promise that this information is just as important as the practical exercises. For the purposes of this course, it's important to understand that the front part of the brain is responsible for logical thinking, or making sense of things. This part of the brain is very evolved and pretty smart. Now, we have other areas in the brain responsible for memories, different senses, and autonomic functions of the body. And then we have our emotional system, which is completely separate from our logical system. While the logical brain is pretty evolved, the emotional brain is very primitive. In fact, it's downright prehistoric. The emotional brain has not changed significantly in millions of years, meaning it works the same today as it did back then, the same as the day we were born, and the same as the way it works in our pets. The way the emotional brain works is it scans what's going on in the front part of the brain, which is trying to make sense of the world. If along the way the emotional brain sees a problem, 
It starts pushing buttons and releasing chemicals into the body such as adrenaline, cortisol, and norepinephrine. These chemicals cause an emotional reaction in the body. For example, adrenaline can cause the heart to start racing, the muscles to start shaking as they prepare for action, and we might start sweating. We may feel an impulse to run away or avoid a situation. We call this fear. Or we may feel an impulse to control the situation or to enter into conflict. We call this anger. The emotional brain might also draw blood away from the areas that we don't require in a fight-or-flight situation. For example, our stomach, and then we might feel queasy. Or from our head, and then we may feel lightheaded. These are examples of fight-or-flight reactions, and they're perfectly normal and even inevitable. They're not always pleasant, and don't always really correspond to the external situation, but this is the way that we are all built. Now, as I mentioned before, the emotional brain scans what's going on in the logical brain. However, the logical brain has changed a lot, especially over the last 200,000 years, and today is capable of some pretty cool stuff. The logical brain can think about advanced ideas such as relationships or work, or futuristic thoughts like what can happen tomorrow or next year, and imaginary or hypothetical thoughts like what if. These abilities allow us to create the world we live in, and obviously has a lot of advantages. However, this way of thinking is so advanced that our emotional brain doesn't always understand what's going on. Imagine that in the front part of our brain, we have this really smart professor explaining what's going on. But in the back part of our brain, we have this four-year-old child who is stuck at the age of four, evolutionarily speaking. And this child doesn't understand a half of what the professor is explaining. So what happens is, there's a lot of misunderstandings between the two and a lot of unnecessary pressing on the fight-or-flight button by that four-year-old child, even in situations which aren't really survival situations and they don't require an adrenaline response. In order to understand how frequently this actually happens, and to hear some examples, let's move on to the next screen. So let's review some examples of misunderstandings between the professor and the child. In a horror movie, the emotional brain might see something scary and then push that adrenaline button and we start to experience fear. The logical brain might come along and say, hey, it's just a movie. It's not real, we're good. The emotional brain doesn't understand hypotheticals and so doesn't understand that it's just a movie. So it keeps pushing on that button and we keep experiencing this fear response. The same thing can happen on a roller coaster. The emotional brain says, oh no, we're falling, we're going to die, and then starts pushing on that adrenaline button. The logical brain might come along and say, hey, it's just a roller coaster, it's safe. But once again, the emotional brain doesn't understand and keeps pushing that fight-or-flight button, and that's why sometimes we end up with our hands flailing in the air and screaming our lungs out. Now, those may be extreme examples, but the same thing happens to us on a day-to-day -day basis in many situations. For example, on a first date, a new job, a big exam, driving for the first time, or even a child sleeping in the dark.
These are all typical examples where we might experience unnecessary survival responses due to the evolutionary gap between our logical and our emotional brains. So, if this is true for everyone, why is it that some people have more trouble with emotions than others? To find out, let's move on to the next screen. In order to understand why some people have more emotional difficulties than others, let's take the example of the child who's afraid of sleeping in the dark. Let's say this child runs off to his parents' room and they can either let him sleep with them or send him back to his room to sleep in the dark. If they send him back, all their logical explanations are not going to calm his fears. The minute they leave him alone in the dark again, he's going to get scared and run off again. After they bring him back a few more times, he realizes they're not going to let him run away from his fears, so he tries to deal with the dark and stay in bed. Eventually, he falls asleep, wakes up in the morning and sees that nothing bad happened. However, the emotional brain might say to itself, you know, just because there was no monster yesterday doesn't mean there's not going to be a monster today. And so the next day the child gets scared again and runs off to his parents' room again, and then they bring him back to his room again. And they do this back and forth for a couple of weeks until several things start to happen. First of all, the emotional brain while it may not understand logical explanations, it does understand the language of experience. As it continues to sound off the alarm every night, and yet the child continues to stay in this supposedly dangerous situation, but nothing bad happens, only then with this experience does the emotional brain start to realize, hey, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe there is no monster. And then it starts to gradually reduce that fear response. And over the course of weeks to months, the child experiences less and less fear as his emotional system goes through what is called habituation. So that's one thing that happens. Another thing that happens is that the child starts to realize a couple of things about himself. The first thing that he comes to realize is that he has these uncomfortable thoughts that may be nonsense. For example, thoughts that there's a monster, that the monster is going to get him, that he's going to die, and yet none of these things happen. And so the child learns that he has thoughts that are scary, negative, and uncontrollable, yet he doesn't have to believe or respond to every thought. Apparently, it just happens. And thus, he learns to tolerate the presence of these uncomfortable thoughts. The second thing that he learns about himself is that he also has these uncomfortable physical sensations. For example, a racing heartbeat, his muscles are shaking, he's sweating, or other physical sensations. However, this physical discomfort isn't dangerous, and nothing bad happens to him, and eventually it subsides. So here the child learns to tolerate the presence of uncomfortable physical sensations. The third thing that he learns is that he has these impulses to act. For example, an impulse to run away. Now, he tries to run away, but his parents kept bringing him back, until eventually he decides to try to stick it out. Meaning, he comes to realize 
that he has a choice. He doesn't have to do what he feels. He can resist the emotional impulse and decide to stay. And finally, the last thing that he learns is that even if he doesn't listen to the emotion and run away, or calm himself down, or even do anything, eventually the emotion subsides on its own and even comes back less and less from week to week. And so this child develops what's called emotional self-confidence. Meaning, he comes to learn that emotional thoughts can talk nonsense, physical sensations are not dangerous, behavioral impulses don't have to be heated, and in any case, this whole mess will eventually relax on its own. And so this child is a lot more open to experiencing stressful situations like roller coasters and scary movies. Now, Let's move on to the next screen to hear what happens to the child that ran off and slept in his parents' room. Now let's look at the child who runs off to his parents' room and they let him stay with them. Initially, the child calms down and falls asleep easily. But let's take a look at the effect this change has on him. First of all, the emotional brain doesn't get the experience it needs to realize that there is no monster. And so it keeps firing off that alarm response, and the child continues to experience fear night after night, week after week, month after month, and possibly year after year. In fact, I have adult patients who are still afraid of the dark because they never went through that emotional learning process. That's one thing that happens. Another thing that happens is that the child learns very different things about himself compared to the first child. The first thing this child learns is to listen to his scary or negative thoughts and to believe them, even if the thoughts are a product of the emotional brain's unevolved imagination. For example, thoughts that something bad is going to happen, that he won't be able to cope, that something is wrong with him, that he has to do something. This child learns to engage and heed these thoughts. And as a result of the legitimacy that he gives the thoughts, he only serves to reinforce them and ensure that they continue. The second thing this child learns about himself is that the physical sensations of emotion are a bad thing. After feeling the uncomfortable effects of adrenaline in his body, he ran off to his parents' room and they let him stay with them, resulting in his calming down. As a result, he concludes that he shouldn't be feeling these uncomfortable sensations. He needs to do something to stop them. In other words, he doesn't learn to tolerate the physical manifestation of stress. The third thing that he learns is that he should heed his behavioral impulses. When he felt an impulse to run away, he did so, and his parents let him. So he concludes that he should listen to his impulses in order to resolve emotional distress. For example, impulses to run away, to avoid, to attack, to try and control, to try to seek certainty, to attain perfectionism, to reduce emotions via eating or chemicals, and so on. And finally, he doesn't learn that if he had done nothing and just waited out the emotion, that it would have subsided on its own. So he comes to believe that he needs to do something in order to resolve an emotion, otherwise it'll continue or get worse. As a result, 
Because he is so afraid of his own emotions, he experiences a fear-of-fear fear response, or anger-of-fear response, and consequently only serves to exacerbate both his emotional intensity and the duration of the emotion that he experiences. So this child develops what's called poor emotional confidence. He believes or engages lots of negative thoughts. He is afraid of experiencing the physical sensations associated with emotions. He tends to act impulsively, and he doesn't believe the emotion will subside on its own. I've prepared an illustration to demonstrate this effect. Let's move on to the next screen to see it. To illustrate the previous idea, we can see on the right side the child who learns to tolerate and accept the different manifestations of emotions. Then, when an event triggers him, he experiences a primary natural emotional reaction. Examples of a trigger can be a big exam, a divorce, getting fired, and so on. The natural stress reaction might exhibit itself in negative thoughts, for example, something bad might happen. It might exhibit itself in uncomfortable physical sensations, for example, a racing heartbeat or muscle tension. And it might exhibit itself in behavioral impulses, such as to avoid or control the situation. Since he has learned to accept these manifestations of emotion as normal and tolerable, he waits them out, and with time that initial emotion will first go up, then stop, and finally will subside in its own. With repeated experience to the same trigger, that initial emotion reaction may reoccur at lesser intensities. Just think of yourself on a first date versus several months of dating, or the first day on a job versus several months on the job, or driving for the first time versus driving for several months. In contrast, on the left side we can see the child who hasn't learned to tolerate and accept the different manifestations of emotion. Then, when an event triggers him, he has trouble tolerating that natural primary stress response. He might react to his thoughts by identifying with them and believing them, or he may be fearful of the physical sensations he experiences, whereby his fear only serves to exacerbate the stress and the subsequent physical sensations. Or he may automatically heed his behavioral impulses to run away, or to become aggressive inappropriately, or to eat emotionally, or perform a compulsive ritual. As a result of his reactions to stress, it only increases as he experiences a fear-of-fear response. So the second child will ultimately experience higher levels of stress, and for much longer as he is constantly renewing and exacerbating his stress. Also, his behavior may not always be healthy since he's more focused on resolving the stress than acting logically. As you may have noticed, the problem here is not an emotional one, but rather a conceptual one vis-a-vis -vis our emotions. When we're able to accept our emotions and allow ourselves to tolerate them, they subside quicker. But when we are afraid of our emotions or identify with them, we only serve to increase them. Hence the problem is our tolerance for emotion and not the emotion itself. People who engage their negative or anxious thoughts only serve to increase that anxiety and even cause potential panic attacks. Others try to resolve their stress, for example by avoidance, which may result in the development of phobias, 
or they might try to control their uncontrollable thoughts, which can result in the development of OCD. Or they might try to forcibly soothe their physical discomfort, which may lead to eating disorders or substance abuse disorders. Or they might try to control external events which cause them to feel stress, resulting in anger outbursts. Or they might try to control their own performance, resulting in perfectionism. As a result of this increased stress, they might also develop sleep disturbances, difficulty concentrating, performance idea, or pent-up stress resulting in nervous tics, or nail-biting, or hair-pulling, or skin-picking, which are all automatic behaviors the body uses to try to relieve pent-up stress. So by now we've learned how emotional problems can develop as a result of poor habits. Specifically, poor tolerance for the different manifestations of emotions, including thoughts, physical sensations, and behavioral impulses. Now the question is, what can we do about it? Well, you may have already heard of something called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT. CBT is a short-term and practical treatment which teaches individuals how to recognize poor emotional habits and replace them with healthy coping skills. In the cognitive part of CBT, we learn to differentiate between our logical brain, the professor, and our emotional brain, the four-year-old child. This is important because they both speak through the same channel. And if we're unable to differentiate between the two, we're likely to listen to everything that comes out of the child's mouth, even if it's nonsense. And we're likely to stress out unnecessarily or respond inappropriately. We'll learn to trust our logic more and not to engage every negative or stressful thought that we have. Now, while this may help us not to exacerbate our negative thoughts even more, it won't necessarily calm us down. If we don't listen to our emotional brain, just like any four-year-old child, it doesn't say, oh sorry, looks like I was wrong, I'll go away now. It keeps yelling out for attention. So in the emotional part of therapy, we learn how to tolerate the presence of that emotion and all its manifestations. And then we wait to see what happens. Does it still continue to go up or constantly renew itself? Or does it actually stop quicker and subside faster and even reoccur less and less? So in essence, the cognitive part of therapy serves to increase our self-esteem in the face of our negative thoughts and uncomfortable emotions, and the behavioral part of therapy teaches us how to respond to our emotions in a way that will allow them to subside and habituate rather than accidentally exacerbating them. As I mentioned before, the process we go through is broken down into three major components, thoughts, emotions, and behavior. Let's move on to the next screen to review those components. When we address emotional issues, it's important to remember that emotion is not an isolated phenomenon. There's something that we are doing to influence that emotion, and also the emotion is trying to provoke a behavioral reaction. In fact, that's the entire function of emotion in most animals, to push us to action. So we have this sort of pipeline that takes us through the different parts of the emotional process. Let's take a look at that pipeline now. We can see that the process of an emotional reaction starts with the trigger X on the left. This trigger can be an external event such as divorce, 
getting fired, or a big exam. Or this trigger can be an internal event, such as a thought, a memory, a dream, an uncomfortable sensation, or even an unexpected emotion. Sometimes it's not even clear to us what the trigger is. It's important to understand that these triggers don't necessarily trigger a stress response directly. For example, if I get fired from my job, that doesn't create stress. So what does create the stress? The interpretation that I give to the event of being fired. So for example, if I get fired and then I adopt an interpretation of, oh my gosh, why did I get fired? What did I do wrong? What am I going to do now? How am I going to provide for my kids? Obviously, this kind of interpretation is going to cause a lot of stress. But if in the exact same situation, I adopt an interpretation of, well, that sucks, but I've seen lots of people get fired and I've always found jobs in the past. I have experience and connections now. And in the meantime, I have some savings and the support of family or friends. Oh, I'll survive. This kind of interpretation might still leave me feeling bummed out, but I'll experience a lot less stress. So one of the things we want to look at is your tendency of how to interpret things that happen to you. So long as you interpret things as tolerable, even if unpleasant, then you won't trigger the fight or flight response. However, if you interpret things as very negative or even threatening, you're going to trigger that stress response. Regardless of interpretation, we are still going to experience stress at some point. There's no such thing as life without stress, even for a Buddhist. So how do we respond to that stress when it rears its head? Well, as we said previously, we can either accept and tolerate that stress until it subsides on its own, or we can try to fight it or agree with it, which only leads to legitimizing and exacerbating that stress. So when we work on emotions, we'll practice tolerating the presence of stress and all its manifestations. And then we'll check. When we allow the emotion to just be, does it cause harm or continue incessantly? Or does nothing horrible actually happen and the stress actually dissipates on its own? And finally, emotion tends to express itself in behavioral impulses. So if we heed those behavioral impulses without question, we'll find ourselves reacting to emotional situations with fight or flight reactions such as aggression, avoidance, compulsive behaviors, trying to reach certainty, perfectionism, emotional eating or using substances, or just trying to keep all that stress inside until we start exhibiting automatic behaviors like nail biting or skin picking. So obviously, we want to learn how to tolerate these impulses and choose how to release that tension in healthier and more adaptive ways. So these are the three elements of the emotional pipeline. Thoughts, emotions, and behavior. At each of these junctions, we want to be able to recognize unhealthy habits and to replace them with healthier choices. Well, I've just bombarded you with a ton of information. And I hope you were able to sit through all that and get some value out of it. But what do you do with all that information now? So, as I've said before, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT, can teach you the skills you need in order to identify the previously mentioned unhealthy habits and replace them with healthier coping skills. CBT is something that you can do either with a certified CBT practitioner or you can do it on your own, for example, with the help of an online course. 
since CBT targets the underlying mechanism behind many problems, and because that underlying mechanism is actually almost identical from person to person, CBT will actually consist of the same therapy process and the same tools regardless of the specific issue. It is for this reason that a single treatment protocol has been proven to be effective for many different problems. And since a single treatment protocol can be used for so many problems, it is possible to offer that treatment protocol as a pre-recorded course, regardless of the specific symptom. In fact, that is exactly what has been done in several parts of Europe and research studies have been conducted showing the effectiveness of such self-help courses. The advantages of a self-help course include access to the same explanations and the same tools you would receive in a clinical setting, much lower costs relative to traditional therapy, ease of access from any location at any time, the freedom to review sessions as often as needed, and the option of getting help from an actual therapist in the event that you get stuck in the course. While an online course may not be a great fit for everyone, it has definitely shown great promise and results for many people. If you've enjoyed my mini course and would like more information about my 12-week self-help course, The Healthy Mindset Toolkit, I'm including a link below for more information. Thousands of people have already tried out my courses and many have shared their results on my website. So feel free to look over the information available and to consider whether the course might be a good fit for you. However, at the end of the day, I understand that you might be hesitant to try an option that you may never have heard of before, such as an online self-help course and have no idea if it may work for you personally. So I want you to know that if you sign up for the full course and feel like it's not a good fit for you, you can cancel at any time during your first month and receive a full refund, no questions asked. Well, that's it for now. Once again, I want to thank you for your time and your patience throughout this mini course, and I sincerely hope that it has been helpful for you. I wish you lots of emotional health, self-confidence, achievement, and happiness. And if you decide to sign up for the full course, I'll see you there.